Hello team and welcome back to the Simply Fit Podcast. Today I bring you some incredible news. I have been working on a secret project for the past three or four months now and I now can tell you that the brand new follow along workout channel is live and here. On this YouTube channel you're going to find workouts for fat loss, muscle building, improving your cardio health, flexibility, everything is going to be on there. You're going to find body weight workouts, dumbbell workouts, kettlebell and resistance bands workouts all that you can follow along with and the best part is that it's completely free they're also around 10 to 20 minutes long meaning if you're short of time you can quickly complete an effective workout or you can combine like two or three of them together and complete like a full 45 to 60 minute workout new workouts will go live on the channel every tuesday and thursday and they're going to be accompanied by an amazing backdrop which i'm sure you're all going to enjoy so if you want to find the channel just search elliot hasoon into youtube and you'll find it very easily and please subscribe it makes me very, very happy and it helps the channel grow. And feel free to tell your friends, your family, your pets, whoever you want to share this with and let's work out together. Hello team and welcome to episode 255 of the Simply Fit podcast. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Tim Sharp, aka Dr. Happy. Tim is the founder and CHO, yes, you heard that right, Chief Happiness Officer of the Happiness Institute. He's also a best-selling author and a public speaker, among many other things. Tim began his journey in the realm of clinical psychology, where he had an incredibly successful career helping many of the clients he worked with. He quickly realized that there was no need to stop once he'd taken someone from a challenging place to an okay place and has committed himself to ensure that those he and his company work with aren't just okay, but are fulfilled and thriving. There are so many things to take away from this conversation and you can expect to learn what does being happy really mean, how we can start engaging with negative emotions in a productive way, and how we can navigate toxic relationships, workplaces, and environments that we find ourselves in. So without further ado, Dr. Tim Sharp. Dr. Tim Sharp, welcome to the show. How are you today? Yeah, I'm great. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. I really do appreciate it. And for anyone who hasn't potentially come across yourself or your work before, could you give us a little bit of background on who you are and what it is that you do? Uh, sure. Well, I'll, I'll give a brief version. And if you want me to go into a bit more detail, just let me know. But uh, my name is Dr. Tim Sharp. My background was in clinical and academic psychology. So I started out as a clinician, as a therapist, uh, an academic and researcher, and did that for quite a few years and had a very satisfying and I guess, successful career in the, here in Australia in the public health system. So I was at one of the major teaching hospitals and one of the major universities. I then had a bit of a pivot, I suppose, and went into private practice, which is a bit of a surprise. I hadn't, didn't think that's where I would go, but uh, built up a very successful private practice and discovered a bit of an entrepreneurial gene that I didn't know I had. So uh, what started out just as a solo practice became quite a big business, I suppose. Uh, then had another pivot in the early days of what came to be known as positive psychology. So as I said, I was a therapist focusing in, on clinical psychology, so treating people with stress, depression, anxiety, that sort of thing. But about well, about 20 years ago, I suppose now, uh, the early signs of positive psychology started to, started to grow and I got really excited about it. I thought it was fantastic. So I uh, shifted again into and formed what became the Happiness Institute, which is a, a practice promoting the principles of positive psychology. But that then became the next phase of my career. I moved a lot more into corporate work and speaking, writing and media work and continued that for quite a while until a few years ago, I suppose, when I, I guess I scaled back a few things. I, to be honest, I had, had enough of kind of running the business side of things. So I scaled uh, a lot of the staff back and uh, had multiple locations and multiple staff, scaled a lot of back and kind of went back to my individual <laughs> freelancing routes, I suppose. And now I do a lot of the same things, but just sort of on my own. Well, I've outsourced a lot of the, the business side of things. Um, uh, so I have other people now who run the the business and a lot of the accounts and the business development, etc. And now most of what I do is promote the principles of positive psychology through public speaking, corporate, mostly corporate speaking and event speaking, uh, writing, and I've done a whole series of books and podcasts in recent years. So that's the brief version, but happy to elaborate on any of that if you'd, uh, if you'd like. Yeah, I'm sure you've packed an absolute ton of experiences and life into just that five-minute snippet. So I'm going to go back and dig into a little bit. And I want to understand where your first uh, interaction with psychology started. Where was the first time that you were like, this is something I want to pursue as a career? Was it something that was set in stone from the beginning or was it something that took a little time and fraud in order for you to get across? 
That's a good question, actually, because no, it, it, did, it did take some time. Um, uh, I guess, like a lot of people, I, I don't think I was unusual, but when I finished school, so here in Australia, we finished school about 17 or 18, where, um, and I had no idea at all what I wanted to do, to be honest, but I, I guess I knew a lot of things I didn't want to do. Um, so I started ticking off all the things I didn't want to do, and I ruled out a whole bunch of stuff. And psychology, I, I guess it was the only thing that kind of vaguely interested me, even though I didn't know it at the time. I'd, I'd always had this interest in human behavior and what made people tick, although I didn't, I'd never met a psychologist at that stage, so I didn't really know what they did. But I did think it sounded interesting. So I did go straight into psychology after school, but as I said, didn't really know what it was or where it would take me. And I was pretty, pretty unsettled, to be honest, at that time, I, I, like a lot of young, you know, 18 year old, 19 year old men. So, so I did first year only because I didn't know what else to do. But then, you know, I was pretty itchy, didn't, wasn't really settled. So I did what a lot of young Australians did at the time and, and put a backpack on and headed over to Europe and did the backpacking around Europe thing, uh, working in a pub in London for, for a while and then traveling, meeting up with friends. Came back, did, I thought I'd give it another go. So I went back into second year, um, but still sort of felt a bit unsettled and I guess lost or didn't, you know, didn't really know what to do. So I took another year off and this time went around Australia. <laughs> I thought I'd seen a lot of the world, but I hadn't seen much of my own country. Long story short, came back, I thought I'd give it one more go, got into third year university. And I suppose that's when I started to think, well, maybe I was settling down and maturing a little bit, but it was also when it became a bit more interesting. And I thought, wow, this is maybe I can sort of see something here that rolled on into a fourth year or an honours year. But even then, I still wasn't quite sure. And I was very lucky. I still consider myself extremely lucky because at the end of my honours year, when I was still pretty unsure, I was lucky enough to have a conversation with one of the tutors, one of the lecturers, who encouraged me to apply for the clinical master's program. And I'd never really thought of that. So I'd actually finished my four-year degree, didn't know where I was going to go next, sat and had a look at it. At the last minute, I put the application in, was lucky enough to be accepted, came back and started my master's degree. And that was it. I was sold. It was, it was kind of love at first sight, or not first sight, but I, I, I really loved it. And that was the first time then. So that was, you know, six years post leaving school, a few detours along the way. But that's when I actually thought, wow, this is fascinating. Maybe I could be good at this. This is something I think I could love. And then it, it sort of, it, it went from there. So then I went on to do a PhD and, and all the other stuff came after that. So yeah, it did take a bit of time, but I got there eventually. <laughs> yeah, it seems like once it clicked, it already started to take place and all started to move in the right direction. And I'm interested, based on your experience, you mentioned that you saw the early signs of positive psychology starting to starting to appear in the early stages of your career. What have you seen change across the years? I'm sure there's a lot to answer in that question, but what are some of the key things that you've seen change from the beginning of your career up until now? Oh, lots of things. Uh, lots and lots of things, actually. And and almost all of them good. Um, you know, almost all of them are positive changes. So I guess when I first started out as a clinical psychologist, mental ill health was still very much stigmatized. It was very much sort of hidden away. You know, people didn't talk about it. If people came to see me as a therapist, they wouldn't tell their friends or even their family members, really. It was very much, you know, people were embarrassed and ashamed. Um, and, and that still happens to some extent. There is still a stigma, unfortunately, but much less so. There's been a fantastic movement for, as I said, over the last couple of decades of a number of people, particularly here in Australia, but all around the world, working towards smashing that stigma and normalizing the idea that it's, you know, it's okay not to be okay, that it's okay to get help, but you know we go to we get help in other areas of our life. We see lawyers and accountants and doctors and dentists and car mechanics and all these other experts who help us in different areas of our life. Why shouldn't we see a psychologist to help us in that particular area of our life? So that's been one of the biggest changes, and I said a very positive change, a greater awareness of mental ill health, a greater more conversations around mental health, and a greater willingness. For most people, most of the time, as I said, there's still work to be done. But for most people, most of the time, a greater willingness to accept the okayness of getting psychological help. And then in addition to that, I guess the, one of the other big changes is this shift towards positive psychology. So in addition to working on distress and dysfunction and treating things like stress and depression and anxiety, we're increasingly seeing a recognition of the benefits that can come from focusing on our strengths and working more towards thriving and flourishing, a bit, a bit like the personal trainer model, I suppose. So, you know, people don't just go to personal trainers for rehabilitation if they've had an injury. I mean, that's one thing we can do. You know, if we've had an injury, we can go to a personal trainer or a physiotherapist or some you know, expert and get help to rehabilitate, to regain the strength in that knee or shoulder or whatever it might be. But a lot of people go to personal trainers not because they've been injured or not because they have a problem, because they want to be fit and strong and live a you know active life. And seeing a coaching psychologist or a positive psychologist is similar in a way. You know, you don't have to be 
distressed. You don't have to be suffering from psychological illness to benefit from what many psychologists and coaching psychologists have to offer. So I think that's been a you know, really positive change as well. Yeah, it's a fantastic shift. And I know that you mentioned in an interview that I heard you speak in that you specialized in misery before you specialized in happiness. And I like the distinction between that. And you did just touch on before, you now promote the principles of positive psychology. So could you run us through what those are? Yeah, so well, one of the simplest ways to explain it is to use a metaphor that, that's been used a lot. Um, I'm not sure even the first person that came up with it, but it's been around for quite a few years now. And the idea is that if you think about human functioning or human emotions on a scale of minus 10 to plus 10, where minus 10 is misery, um, so minus 10 is serious depression or serious anxiety or some sort of serious psychological distress, so minus 10. And then as a clinical psychologist, my job, what I was trained to do, and my job was really to help people go from minus 10 to zero. So an absence of distress. So if someone came in and they were really miserable, they were really sad, they were really suffering, my job was to help them not suffer anymore. And that was metaphorically from minus 10 to zero. But that's basically where I would stop, where we were, you know, we were trained to stop there. That we, our job was done when someone was no longer depressed. But what positive psychology uh, started to say again quite a few years ago is, well, that's you know that's a good start. Um, zero is definitely better than minus ten. But but why stop there? Just because someone's no longer distressed doesn't mean they're fully functioning. Doesn't mean they're at their best. So what if we were to go to positive ten or try to help them get close to positive ten, which is thriving and flourishing and real happiness and real psychological well-being. Now, admitting that you know, no one will be at positive 10 every minute of every day, that's impossible. But we can do a lot more than just going from minus 10 to zero. We, we don't need to stop there. So, so in very simple terms, that's what positive psychology is. It's about helping more people be above the line, above that zero. But, you know, another way to think about that, as I said, is that in absence of or minimizing distress is a good thing, but promoting and maximizing psychological well-being or positive emotions is also really important. So one of the primary principles of positive psychology is the promotion of positive emotions like happiness and joy and contentment. But it is a lot more than that. It's also about living a life of meaning and purpose. It's also about being physically healthy. I mean, that's, you know, that's vitally important as well. It's about being really connected, having good quality relationships. So it's about all those aspects of life that make our life the best it can be. Yeah, that's a beautiful answer. And I want to go through some of those positive emotions. So happiness, it's one of those things that no one really seems to know what to do about in terms of, do we chase it? Does, is it something that should be on our agenda? Is it something that should just magically appear? Should we just be automatically born happy? So what does ha- being happy really mean? It's a good question. It's a great question. And because it, on the one hand, it sort of sounds so simple. Like we all think, well, surely we should know the answer to that. But it's not that simple. Um, and it's partly because it's complicated, I think, by a lot of myths and misconceptions. I think that's part of the problem. There's, you know, happiness. Uh, in fact, you know, there are some positive psychologists who don't even like to use the word happiness because it's used by so many different people in different ways. So it can actually be, you know, it can be confusing and misleading in a way. So just to start off with that, the definition of happiness, again, there are different ways we can define it. Uh, one simple way of defining happiness is that it's one form of positive emotion. Now, it's only one form because there are lots of different types of positive emotions. As I hinted at earlier, there's also joy and contentment and satisfaction and pride. And, you know, these are all different ways of feeling good, I guess. So there's different ways we can feel good and different people feel those different ways at different times. But that's, in in a sense, that's not really what positive psychology is about. Well, it's, it's only part of what positive psychology is about. When positive psychologists talk about thriving and flourishing, positive emotions are an important part of that. In fact, they're probably much more important than pe- people realize. They're really good for us, much more good than people realize. But as I said, thriving and flourishing is more than just positive emotions. It's also about positive health and positive meaning and positive relationships. So that's a different form of happiness, I suppose. When I talk about happiness, I'm really talking about thriving and flourishing and living our best life in all those different life domains. How do we have more of that? Should we just have it? Well, look, the bottom line is some people are born, I guess, a little bit luckier than others. And by that, I mean some people find it easier than others. Just like some people can sing in tune or run fast or play a musical instrument or paint a picture. You know, I guess we're all born with sort of natural talents and abilities, I suppose. And for some people, happiness does come more easily. Optimism comes more easily. But the good news is that if you're one of those people for whom it doesn't necessarily come easy, you can work at it, you can develop your skills and become better at it. And that's all that really matters. It doesn't really matter where you start from. Uh, What matters is that you 
you do have a significant degree of control to a large extent over a large component of your happiness. Now, there's another debate that you kind of hinted at in your question, which is, should we actually work towards it or should it be a byproduct of other things that we work towards? To be honest, I think the jury is still out on that because I think that the research is a bit mixed. There is some research that suggests if you directly try to have more happiness, that might be counterproductive. And that if you actually work towards other meaningful goals or other meaningful pursuits, then happiness will just kind of come as a byproduct. I think it's a bit of both. Uh, And I think the only reason that striving towards happiness directly might be counterproductive is if your expectations are unrealistic or if your definition is unrealistic. And by that, I mean, often, you know, one of the biggest mistakes some people make is thinking they should be happy all the time. That's a mistake because it's, you know, it's impossible. We, We shouldn't be happy all the time. It's perfectly appropriate, perfectly normal to be sad sometimes, to be anxious sometimes, to be angry even. I mean, these are normal human emotions. If we think there's something wrong (laughs) when we're angry or frustrated, then, you know, that's a bit of a recipe for unhappiness. Yeah, absolutely. And with that being said, I know I'm going to give you a question that's going to lead you to a black and white answer, which it probably doesn't require. But would you then say that happiness is indeed a choice? I'll say yes and no. <laughs> I'll say yes. I'd largely say yes because, as I said, to a large extent. So, okay, if, if I'll take a step back. If we look at the research, so most of the researchers, most of the experts in this area, when they're asked, you know, what are the main contributors to happiness, they would so they tend to say there's sort of three big guns, you know, three main contributors. One of them is genetics, um, you know, or our, you know, our biopsychophysiology, whatever you want to call it, our psychological, physical makeup, I guess. And, you know, so to a large extent, we inherit that from our parents and grandparents and, you know, all our predecessors, I suppose. And, and there's no doubt that's important, just like it is important in other areas of our life. Again, you know, your athletic ability or your musical ability or whatever, that's to some extent that's inherited, but also to some extent you've got some control over it. So like, you know, if, let's just say I'm not, I'm not naturally talented in the musical area. That doesn't mean that if I chose to, I could, you know, if I chose to, I could go and get piano lessons. And if I practiced every day, I would be able to gain a certain competence in playing the piano. I might not mm. ever be a concert pianist or, you know, a, a chart winning, um, uh, you know, performer, but I could get better. And so it's the same with happiness in a sense, just despite my genetic makeup, if I want to, I can learn the skills, practice those skills, and get better at those skills and therefore be happier. So, but it's not, you know, that doesn't mean it's 100% in my control because as I said, to some extent, my genes uh, have some influence over that. One of the other main contributors is my sort of what we call our early learning history. Those things that happen particularly in the formative years, which are sort of zero to, well, it depends who you ask, but, you know, six or seven or eight. Those, those first formative years of our development are really important. There's no doubt about that. And if, for example, there's a concept called ACE, A-C-E, or adverse childhood events, if people have significant trauma or significant adverse childhood events, in the, particularly in those early years, then they're far more likely to experience depression, anxiety, and other forms of mental health. And again, you know, as an adult, I can't go back and change those things. I can't undo them. But again, it's not 100%. We know that a lot of people do overcome them or they find ways to reinterpret them, to learn from them, to grow from them. So it doesn't necessarily mean that if I've had adverse child events, then I'm destined that fate has determined I will definitely be miserable. It's not necessarily that black and white. But the third bit is what we call intentional behaviours or what I choose to do each and every day. And I guess regardless of my genes, regardless of my childhood, for me as a psychologist, this is the most important thing because this is what I do have control over. I can choose each and every day whether I'm going to exercise. I choose each and every day whether I'm going to eat healthy salads and fruit and vegetables or crap. (laughs) I choose every day how I'm going to interact with other people, whether I'm going to be grateful, you know, what I'm going to focus on or think about or what goals I'm going to work towards. And again, regardless of those other factors, those day-to-day, week-to-week, those lifestyle choices uh, are significant. And so I suppose, again, as a psychologist, that's what I encourage most people to focus on because those choices are really important. And, and, and as I said, they're the ones, you know, we do have a significant degree of choice in those choices. Mm, that's really, really interesting. And I want to come back to ACE a little bit later, but I know that's going to be a rabbit hole that once we go down, we're probably not going to come back out for another 30 minutes or so. But what I do want to touch on is the first, this is the first time I've ever heard happiness almost described as like a skill that can be acquired or a habit that can be built essentially. And when you refer to the creative endeavors, the sport and being able to get better of those, it's really interesting to hear it 
described in those terms. And my mind automatically, and maybe unfortunately, went towards, well, how do you measure the return on investment? How do you know if you're ultimately getting happier? Because I know you can definitely see, well, I couldn't play this piece on the piano before, and now I can. I wasn't scoring any points in this basketball game, but now I am. So how do we know whether we're actually improving the amount of happiness that we're having on a day-to-day basis? How can we quantify that? Or maybe we shouldn't be quantifying that, and that's the answer in itself. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a really good question. And it's, again, it's probably more complicated than, than many of us, than we realize when we think about those sorts of things. So it, again, on the one hand, some people would say that you shouldn't quantify it because I guess on the one hand, if you, you don't necessarily want to be thinking about this every minute of every day, if you start obsessing about it, then it can become a bit counterproductive. Um, so we do need to be careful there. But at the same time, there are ways to measure happiness. Um, one of the things people don't know about psychologists is they love measuring things. So there are literally hundreds of different happiness questionnaires and surveys. You know, you could even just go online and search for them and find a whole bunch of non, not very good ones necessarily, but, you know, glossy magazines and, you know, all sorts of websites will publish different versions of happiness scales. Some are better than others, but on a formal academic level, there are multiple happiness scales. There are, well, there's one called the, the one of the most famous ones is the Oxford happiness uh, questionnaire, which is sort of an over, there's a number of overall happiness measures, but then there are also a number of sort of specific happiness measures that measure some of those specific components that we briefly touched on, like optimism, for example, or like the quality of our relationships or like a sense of meaning in life. So the simple answer is, so, so you can actually measure happiness either on a sort of global scale or with some of those subcategories or subcomponents in a sense. But one of the other things we can actually just do on a regular basis is pause and ask ourselves, like, how am I feeling today? Now, we do need to be a little bit careful. So if I go back to the the two levels of the definition that I said earlier, there's happiness as a form of emotion, and then there's happiness as an overall quality of life thing. I guess what I'd encourage people to do is to focus on the latter one, because if we focus on the first one, well, yes, we're going to be happy at times, and we can do things to increase the frequency of that happiness, the frequency of that positive emotion. But by definition, it will still be fleeting. Um, And by definition, or as I said a bit earlier, we will still have some of those unpleasant emotions because I said it's normal to be anxious at times. It's normal to be stressed or sad. So so we don't want to, I guess what I'm cautioning people, we don't want to get to this situation where every minute we feel unhappy, we think there's something wrong. It's not wrong. It's just a part of life. So the better question to ask, we can actually say, am I happy now? And that's a valid question. But a better question I would say is taking everything into account, how satisfied am I with my life overall? So that's more of what psycho that's measuring more of what psychologists would call quality of life or life satisfaction, which is a set of more global measure. And so the answer to that might be, well, you know, I might actually say I'm feeling pretty shitty at the moment. But the quality of my life's actually pretty good. I've got a lot to be grateful for. Most things are going well. The fact I'm feeling a bit shitty is because I've got this work thing on or I've just had a disagreement with my child or whatever it might be, but that's okay, you know, that will pass. So so that's a much better question to ask is taking everything into account, how satisfied with my life. And that, that can mean, that means at times we can overlook some of those unpleasant emotions knowing that the foundations of our life are good. And so that's, you know, that's a question we can ask on a regular basis, I guess, either daily or weekly or monthly. And, and, you know, I think that's a healthy thing to do. Yeah, I completely agree. And I'm interested to hear in terms of having happiness as not necessarily a goal, but more maybe a distant goalpost in which you're constantly working towards or something that's a daily practice almost. Because I have heard a lot of people say before, or even I think I heard it growing up, the most important thing is that you're happy or like, you know, I just want to be happy. And how helpful are those terms and are those phrases? Because what I'm hearing you saying is that happiness almost has gotten this reputation for being something that's quite superficial, not superficial, but almost surface level and in the moment. It's the smile on your face. It's the thing that brings you joy almost immediately. And maybe if I could uh, rephrase it, I would maybe say that happiness is a little bit closer to fulfillment. Is that correct in saying? Well, well, I mean, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, it it all really comes down to your definition. So it comes down to how you define happiness. So if you say, you know, the most important thing to be happy, if you mean by that is to feel good all the time, well, that's that's a bit of a trap. Because we won't feel good all the time. We shouldn't feel good all the time. But if you mean, you know, if when you say the most important thing is to be happy, if you mean living a meaningful, fulfilled life overall, that's a completely different thing. Um, and I'll give you an example, uh, you know, I suppose just to give you a personal example. Uh, one of my, what I consider one of my greatest achievements, um, professional achievements, was completing a PhD. Now, anyone that's done, completed a PhD or, or really any degree or any 
any significant goal, you know, training for a marathon or, or a major work project or whatever, most people would have done something like that, some significant goal. That's, you know, and, and I'm talking about something that's over at least a couple of months, maybe even a few years. I mean, the PhD was a couple of years. But so anyone that's done this, you know, that's worked towards and completed a significant goal will know that it's, you know, when you get there, it's very fulfilling. That sense of fulfillment and satisfaction is, you know, that's a really important part of living a good life. But what they will also know is that along the way, there was almost certainly blood, sweat and tears. There was almost some, certainly some days or nights or weeks that were just really, really hard and possibly really, really unpleasant. So, you know, I, I thoroughly enjoyed doing my PhD. I certainly thoroughly, you know, felt very satisfied completing it. But I would never say I enjoyed every single minute or every single task within that. I mean, some of the, you know, some of the statistics and the data entry was just plain boring and mundane. But because it's part of that bigger picture, it's worthwhile. So that's why, you know, if my goal was just to feel good all the time, you'd never do something like that because you'd give up as soon as it got hard. And that's why we need to be a bit careful. We need to have that bigger picture in mind, I think, or else we'll never achieve those longer. You know, if, if we're just trying to feel good all the time, well, that's what, I guess that's what some people call hedonism. And that's not the same thing at all. And in fact, it's not really healthy, particularly in the long term. Yeah, it's interesting. Hedonism was literally the word that came to my mind as soon as you were describing that. And it was the thing that was going through my head in the sense of considering the amount of people who were talking, you know, happiness is so important and all these different narratives I've got around happiness. I've always felt it's like, eh, you know, it's, it's one of those things that's it's great to have. But when you re-contextualize it and call it fulfillment, I'm like, okay, well, that seems like a worthwhile purpose to be working towards. But just being happy, and I think that maybe it's partly to do with the media and the narrative that the word happy has been given, that it does seem a little bit more hedonistic is probably the correct word and that is maybe where the challenge comes from but on that note we've spent a lot of time on the quote-unquote positive emotions and i want to switch over to the negative emotions quote-unquote once again and what utility do those have because you like you mentioned earlier being anxious is somewhat normal um being sad stressed all those things are somewhat normal but in the moment that we're in them they don't feel normal they don't feel comfortable so how can we start to maybe look at them in a little bit of a better light and have a slightly more optimistic perspective on those uh, negative emotions that we experience yeah well again i mean as you hinted at the early part of your question you know i don't even really like to call them negative emotions because it implies they're bad and, and they're not all bad it, they can be problematic if they become too pervasive and too overwhelming. So I'm not, I guess the caveat is I'm not suggesting that, you know, major depressive disorder, that serious psychological illness is good. It's it's not. You know, when it gets to that level, we need to, uh, you know, by, by definition, it's problematic and we need to help those people get help. But there are normal, uh, you know, normal levels. These things happen on a continuum and there's a uh, for most of us, those unpleasant emotions are normal uh, and a normal part of life and even a healthy and appropriate part of life. Now, so the simplest one to explain, I suppose, is fear and anxiety. And then we can maybe look at some of the other ones. But if you think about it, one of the simplest ways to understand is to think about it from an evolutionary perspective. And there are, you know, there's a whole branch of psychology called evolutionary psychology, which personally I find fascinating. Um, and the, it, it very simple is it's about understanding us humans today based on our history you know the, 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 we are who we are today um, because of what we've been over thousands upon thousands of years and anyway so if you think back well not even thousands of years just but even hundreds of years i suppose fear and anxiety were really really important we would not have survived as a species without fear and anxiety we would have walked up and patted that lion we would have gone too close to the fire or we would have gone too close to the cliff edge you know so fear and anxiety actually uh, it's like a, a protective mechanism it protects us from doing dangerous things from taking unnecessary risks. And I think so that's that's one of the easiest ones to understand. Most people can understand that it, that if or another way to think, you know, if you're a parent, uh, imagine if you had a child that had no fear or anxiety. They probably wouldn't last very long. It would be actually really dangerous. We want our children to have a certain amount, not too much, but you know, an appropriate level of fear and anxiety. So so that's probably the easiest to understand. We can see if we think about it like that that fear and anxiety to a point in context is actually a healthy thing. But so too is sadness and grief. I mean, sadness, for example, oh, and even anger to some extent, it it shows we care. You know, it's a sign that we care about things, that we care about people. And so when we, you know, when we're grieving, for example, it's a it's an indication of love in a way. I mean, it can be very painful and unpleasant, but it shows that we love that person or that we love that. Um, and, and, and it also often connects us with others. If you think about grief or grieving, we're almost always grieving in the context of other family members, other under uh, other relationships. So so again, the bottom line is these things are normal, they are appropriate, they serve a useful purpose. 
Um, but the other thing to keep in mind is they often connect us with other people. We, we want to try and allow them to connect us with other people. Uh, the hard thing is that for many of us, when we experience unpleasant emotions, we often withdraw. But if we can find a way to work against that, I suppose, and this is a big one, I suppose. This is one of my favorite topics of recent years, I guess. One of the most important things for psychological well-being is to become more comfortable with discomfort. And I think too often we try to repress or suppress discomfort through things like drugs and alcohol. You know, alcohol is a common one. I'm really stressed. What do I do? I'll have a glass of wine. Now, you know, I'm not opposed to a glass of wine or a beer or whatever it might be, but using that on a regular basis to suppress or to calm unpleasant emotions is not great for our psychological health and well-being. But there are other things that many of us do. I mean, many of us, you know, we scroll through social media or binge flicks uh, you know, binge Netflix so that we don't have to feel and we don't. And But what we need to do or what I would encourage people to think about doing a bit more of is allowing ourselves to feel even those unpleasant emotions, because the more you can do that, the less power they have over you. Um, and the more you can free yourself up to then experience some of the more positive emotions. Mm, but I can imagine that sounds pretty overwhelming to let all the stresses in your life start to actually have a voice. And I know you mentioned that it almost has that opposite effect in which they have less power. But I can imagine if we begin engaging in those, especially if we haven't had experience, I definitely can relate to that, that it will almost seem very all-encompassing and very real compared to before. It's nice to keep it in this little packaged box or somewhere away from where I don't have to deal with it. So I wonder how we can get to a place where we're willing to face up to them. Oh, look, 100%. And, and look, you've, you've made a couple of really important points there that I'll pick up on. So you're 100% right. It, it can seem very overwhelming. It is difficult. By definition, it's unpleasant. It's it's distressing. But um, I think inadvertently, you used a couple of words in there that I think almost give the answer. You said, you know, we're facing all of this. You don't have to face it all at once. In fact, I'd encourage people not to face it all at once. If you do have a lot of distress in your life, or if you've been suppressing these things for a long time, just start small. Start with small things, with small, less intense emotions, with smaller problems and build up from there. And again, I, I often use the sort of physical fitness metaphor um, because it's, you know, it's nice and tangible. Most of us understand it, but it's the same thing as saying that if I wanted to get fitter and stronger, if I wanted to train to run a marathon, you know, I, mean, I wouldn't go out tomorrow and run 42 kilometers. Or I wouldn't, or if I did, I'd probably be in bed for the next month, you know. Or you wouldn't just go to the gym and start throwing around really, really heavy weights. You know, any sensible person would understand that if I wanted to get fitter, I'd start off just walking around the block or maybe jogging, you know, slow jogging for a kilometer, um, maybe going to the gym and lifting some light weights just a few times. And then you build up from there. You know, and I think that makes sense to most people. And that's, you know, that sort of slow and gradual approach, whether it's lifting weights or running or riding your bike or whatever it might be, over the long term, that's far more likely to be effective and you're far, more, far, far less likely to have any injuries. Well, it's the same in the psychological realm. You, know, you don't have to throw yourself in the deep end. In fact, I'd encourage you not to throw yourself in the deep end. Just start small with, some, you know, with a small stressor, with a, a mild, unpleasant emotion. And then as you build up your skills, quote unquote, you can work your way towards some of the more serious or more intense ones. Yeah, that's very relatable with the clients I work with. It's all about minimum effective dose in the initial stages. It's about getting the most out of the absolute minimum. And then as you mentioned, once their proficiency and their ability to tolerate more increases, then the more comes in a strategic manner. So it seems pretty simple in my mind how that's done from a health and fitness perspective, but what are some maybe more practical ways that we could start engaging with some of those emotions um, if we aren't used to it whatsoever? What's the minimum effective dose for engaging with our quote-unquote negative emotions? emotions yeah another really good question um it's a little bit hard to answer specifically because it will be really different for different people but one thing i suggest or one strategy people could use so there's a concept in psychology called uh, exposure therapy or gradual exposure therapy which is particularly useful in the anxiety disorders and what that means is facing up to your fears i guess is the simple way of describing it so if you're very uh, you know if you're very afraid of a particular you know, situation or a particular object or whatever you don't necessarily have to confront that all in one go what you would do is is build what we call an exposure hierarchy starting off with sort of small fears or mild fears and gradually building up step by step over days or weeks or months depending on what it is and eventually getting to what it is that you want to face so just to give you a tangible example let's just say well let's say someone's um, afraid of speaking in public which is you know, very 
very common fear, uh, very, very common. A lot of people are socially anxious or socially phobic. I wouldn't suggest that your first goal tomorrow should be go out, walk up to a conference and speak in front of a thousand people. I mean, you could do that and, and um, <laughs> that would be one way of doing it. But more often than not, for most people, it would be more sensible to start small and build up. So start off, build a scale or a hierarchy. Usually we, you know, it's usually we sort of 10 steps just because 10 is a nice round number, but that's just, that's arbitrary. So it can be whatever you want, but you, so you put your big one at the top. That's number 10. So that's speaking at a conference in front of, you know, hundred people or whatever it might be. But then what I'd encourage someone to do is think, well, come back down to zero or one. What's a very small version or a much easier version of that that you think you could manage in the next few days or the next week? Now, it needs to be a little bit anxiety provoking or else you're not really doing anything. Like just like when you go to the gym, if you don't, if there's no resistance there, you're not going to build any muscle. But it's, so it needs to be hard enough to be meaningful, but not too hard that it's so overwhelming. So that might be, for example, just doing a practice speech in front of your husband or wife or best friend, you know, just something or a trustworthy colleague or something. And then uh, I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm abbreviating this a lot, I'm oversimplifying it, but basically what you then try to do is say so you've got your number one, which is relatively easy, relatively doable. You've got your number 10, which is pretty overwhelming, but where you want to get to eventually. And then you sort of fill in all the gaps. So ideally you've got small progressive steps that gradually become a bit harder and harder until you eventually, again, it might take weeks or months or whatever, but till you eventually achieve your goal. And it's up to you to define what your goal is. Not everyone wants to speak at conferences, say, but that's just the, the example I'm giving. So we can do the same thing when it comes to confronting other forms of distress. And we could, if we were to list all the different things in their life that they're currently finding unpleasant or distressing, it might be a particular relationship issue, it might be a job issue, or might be a, a, something to do with their finances or a health issue, whatever it might be. So write them all down. So I'm worried about this. I'm stressed about this. I've been avoiding that. I've been avoiding that. And then look at them all and kind of rank them as best you can from easiest to hardest. Now, again, it, it might not be a nice smooth line. Some will be, might be a few harder ones and a few easy ones, but as best you can lay them out in a progressive way. So you start off with the relatively easy ones and build your way up again. And then along the way, You'll be building your skills, you'll be building your confidence, and hopefully as you get more confident and more skilled, more competent, you can achieve more and more and then eventually get to the harder ones. Mm, I like that framework a lot. I know that a lot of people I've worked with will tend to get stuck on maybe step seven or step eight, or maybe they have a, they get step 10, but they have an incredibly distressing experience. Maybe they go to perform in front of those 1,000 people and they choke even after all the work they've done. So what do we do in those situations where we kind of get stuck on that ladder? Maybe we start regressing a little bit because that does tend to happen a lot in the work that I do for sure. Yeah, okay, great question. Another good question. And that's really important to keep in mind that with any, you know, as someone that's worked for decades as a, a clinical psychologist and therapist and then as a coach, uh, one of the things I've learned, one of the things we know, one of the things we're sort of constantly reminding clients about is that progress is very rarely smooth. <laughs> in fact, it's hardly ever a nice straight line. More often than not, there's bumps and troughs and ups and downs. And as you quite rightly said, setbacks, it's a normal part. So I guess what we, as a therapist or coach, um, what I would want to do is normalize that with my clients. So it's, it's okay. It's a normal thing. In fact, even before they start, I would try to prepare them for that. So you know, this is probably going to happen. It might be nice to have this nice smooth progression and, and maybe you will, like some people do, and that's fantastic. But most people, most of the time, at some point, whether as you said, it's number seven or number six or whatever it might be, because we, we can't always predict how hard or easy things are going to be when you know when i described designing that hierarchy to some extent that's you know that's an intellectual exercise but it's not always realistic so sometimes we'll make mistakes sometimes we'll think something's going to be easier than it was or sometimes we'll think it's going to be harder than it will be so so it's a really good question and i guess what i would I, as much as possible even before we start i would try to prepare the person for that say okay look you know we hope it's going to be nice and smooth we hope you progress all the way up but there's a chance that it's somewhere Somewhere along the line, you might slip back or have a setback or whatever. And if so, this is what we can do. So you prepare a setback plan in advance if possible. And, and a big part of that is, again, just accepting that it's okay. It's okay to go backwards a bit. It's okay to slip up. You know, if you get up to number seven and it doesn't work out, well, drop back down to five or four. That's fine. And then start again. Maybe revise your plan. Maybe 
review the order that you do things in. Maybe you need to learn a new skill or get a bit more help or whatever it might be. But I think, again, probably there's there's a number of things that can be helpful there, but one of the most helpful, I think, is to normalise the bumpy road that we will have. I mean, it's just like life, you know, life's not smooth. It's not, life's not without problems. Um, The people who are most happy and successful in life, it's not that they don't have problems, it's that they accept and deal with those problems better. One of the things we know about the happiest and most successful people is is that it's not that they don't have problems or that they don't face adversity or difficulties, they do, um, and sometimes just as much as the rest of us. Uh, it's just that they accept that and deal with it better. So, you know, accepting setbacks, uh, knowing that we'll fail sometimes or mess up is actually a really, really important part of progress and success. Amazing. And on that note, what may, what I've come to the conclusion of based on conversations so far is that a lot of the times we can think of ourselves as either an optimist or a realist. So I guess the question to summarize all of it is how can we stay within the concept, yeah, the context of remaining positive and engaging within those positive emotions whilst also being grounded in reality? Yeah, another great. There's some great questions here. Um, <laughs> but I think, well, the first thing I say, I think, I think you've again hit on a really, really important point. But you know, so so often in the in the psychological research and in particularly in the sort of self help pop psychology, I mean, people often label others or they label themselves as you know either an optimist or a pessimist, or they're happy or they're unhappy, or they're an extrovert or an introvert. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of dichotomies that we create. Whereas the reality is that most of us are somewhere in the middle. Or we're, you know, we're a bit of all of those things, uh, apart from the very, very extremes. And look, you know, admittedly, there are some people at either end of this extreme on some of those dimensions. But I'm very much an introvert at times, but I spend a lot of my time speaking in public. You know, I am, am very much an optimist at times. I'm very hopeful about people in the world, but I certainly become pessimistic at times. And and there's a good reason for that. You know, I think there's good reason to be pessimistic about certain things some of the time. So uh, I think one of the first things I'd say is it's 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 actually not healthy to either think of others or ourselves in those dichotomies, in that black and white way. Um, it's probably more healthy to understand that we have all of those elements, all those different components in us all the time. And what we want to do, I suppose, is it, the question really, I think, is not whether we're this or that, but the question is, is what's helpful for me at this point in time? Yeah. So there's, there's times when it's really helpful to be positive and optimistic and hopeful. There's other times when it's important or at the same time, we, we definitely need to be grounded in reality. You know, where positive thinking goes wrong sometimes is that there's nothing inherently wrong with positivity but where it can be problematic is if it's blatantly unrealistic because then we set ourselves up for failure and then we're just going to be disappointed and frustrated so you know the, the big question that i constantly ask or encourage, and encourage others to ask is not what's right or wrong or black or whatever but what's helpful and the reason that's important is that what's helpful for me might be different to what's helpful for you and what's helpful for me today might be different to what's helpful tomorrow or yesterday so but if we're constantly focused on, you know, what's going to help, what's constructive, I guess it's another way of what psychologists sometimes call solution-focused thinking. You know, what's the answer to this? What's the solution to this problem? We need to acknowledge there is a problem sometimes because there is, but there's also almost always solutions um, and finding the best solution for me at this time is really what, what it's all about. Yeah, I love that answer. And on the note of solution-based thinking and navigating problems that we might have not seen before. I hear a lot of people speaking about, and I can imagine it's incredibly important, which is your environment. There's a lot of people who say they are in a toxic work environment. They're in a toxic relationship. They are in a toxic friendship. There's all these different things. So if we are in one of those situations where, obviously, I think the first answer is like, if you can leave that workplace or that relationship, that's probably going to be the answer. But let's say we're in a situation where, let's use a work example, because that might be a little bit more realistic, where you're probably not going to be leaving for the next year or so. You've invested yourself into this company, but it does seem to be a very toxic work environment. How can we maintain our levels of healthy, positive thinking despite the environment not lending to that whatsoever? Yeah, oh, look, so that's a, again, a, a complex question. It's it's a little bit hard to answer specifically because there's so many different variables in that. So certainly, you know, there's, there's definitely times when the, the best option is to leave a toxic environment. So if you know if it's an abusive relationship, for example, or you know, there's there's certain situations where it's kind of non-negotiable, get out as soon as you can. But Probably again, more often than not, most of us are kind of in the middle ground. It's not that easy. Uh, so, uh, what, one thing we need to remember, I suppose, is that we we can't always control what happens to us, but we can always control how we respond to what happens to us. So we can we can control how we think about it, how we react to it. That's not always going to be perfect, and I guess that's part of the answer here is accepting imperfection, imperfections in the world around us, imperfections in others. 
imperfections in ourselves. Um, and part of that is accepting that, you know, not every job or every job within every organization will be perfect. You know, there's almost, especially if you work in a large organization, say, there's almost certainly going to be someone you don't like or someone that rubs you up the wrong way or even aspects of your job that are not fulfilling. You know, some things, sometimes we've just got to do stuff that's boring or unpleasant or whatever. So, so part of it is being realistic again and accepting that, that, you know, life's not always roses and um, it's not always sunshine and rainbows um so we do need to accept the unpleasantness of life and the unpleasantness of other people sometimes but again what we can do is i guess deal with that as best we can and one thing we do need to understand at times is that some of that toxic toxicity might actually be in our own the way we're dealing with it so i know for example that i when one of the mistakes i make particularly if i'm tired or stressed or if i'm you know if i'm having a bad period i can have a tendency to what what we call catastrophize uh, which is like make mountains out of molehills so you know i know that for a fact when i'm upset or when i'm down or when i'm tired i make things seem worse than they really are and so one of the things that i can try and do and my or that my wife often tries to help me do is put things in perspective you know and that's kind of say well okay maybe it is bad but is it really as bad as you're making up so, you know, is it really a 10 out of 10? Maybe it's only a 5 out of 10 or even a 3 out of 10. So that's that's something we can do. And there's a whole bunch of unhelpful thoughts or what psychologists sometimes call cognitive distortions that we all do at times, whether it's catastrophizing or overgeneralizing is one. So that might be in a job situation. It might be, you know, if there's one bad person that was like, oh, everyone here is horrible. Or if there's one bad uh, aspect of my job saying, oh, the whole job's terrible. What we can do instead, what's healthier to do instead is to be more specific. So, well, I really don't like Joe. Or I don't like Mary, but I like all these other people. All these other people are nice. And that can really, I mean, that's a bit oversimplistic, but it can actually make a difference to, to be more specific, to put things in perspective, to think a bit more clearly and rationally about things, not to let our emotions take over sometimes. That doesn't mean we should ignore our emotions. But sometimes our emotions can, well, they can mislead us at times, I suppose. And what, what we need to understand is that we need to listen to our emotions, but not always, not always trust them, not always believe them. So, yeah, so definitely if something is blatantly toxic, if it's definitely if it's dangerous, get out of it, get away from it as quickly as possible. But the idea that the grass is always greener somewhere else, well, sometimes the grass is greener where you tend to that grass, where you fertilise the grass, and we can often tend to our own grass a lot more than we do by being careful about how we think about things, by being more solution focused by communicating more assertively, you know, so talking to a manager, for example, again, many of us will avoid that conflict or difficulty, but sometimes talking to a colleague or a manager, looking for different ways to do things can actually be a simple solution to many things that we, you know, and we could often do that a lot better. Mm, I think that's a really, very valuable answer. And the few takeaways I got from that was leave if possible, if it is dangerous or to the point in which it maybe isn't going to give a good enough return on investment. The second is communication and just making sure you're having that conversation. And then perspective, I guess, is the final uh, key to that, that very complex <laughs> equation. But it's probably some good starting steps on that. We are going to take a really hard left turn here. So forgive me for the <laughs> the, na- the nature of this question. So as a positive, as someone who focuses very much on positive psychology, what's your perspective on death? Oh, wow. <laughs> that was a hard left hand. It was. Uh, <laughs> but it's a very interesting question. And it's something, I guess I've always thought about it because I've, I've, I've had a, a long-standing amateur, very amateurish interest in Buddhism, I suppose. Um, and, you know, the, the, there's a Buddhist practice or part of Buddhist practice is actually thinking about death, is meditating upon death. I mean, the, the idea, and it's not just Buddhism, but in other sort of philosophies and other religions as well, the idea is that death's inevitable, you know, which to me makes sense, you know, it, you can't really avoid it. But by avoiding thinking about it, which many of us, particularly in the Western world, do, we're, we're avoiding the inevitable and we're making it more distressing than it probably needs to be. And so the flip side of that is that facing up to it, recognizing it, meditating upon it, actually makes it uh, an easier process in a sense. That doesn't mean it's always going to be easy to die or to deal with death, but it can actually be easier. Just like, well, I suppose like facing up to any fear really makes it a lot easier. But, you know, avoidance tends not to work very well most of the time. Uh, and again, but in, you know, in Western society, we do avoid it a lot. We, you know, we hide it away. It, you know, it's in this sort of sterilized, um, you know, it's in hospitals, it's in, it's in uh, funeral parlors. You know, we don't see it. Whereas, it wasn't that long ago, and even in you know in, in many other cultures to to this day, people died in the home. You know, they were buried near the home, and so we people 
explore and experience it much more. And, you know, there's a very good argument for saying that's a healthier approach. Now, this is something I've thought a lot more personally about in recent years, because I, I guess I had my first very significant grieving experience where my mother died a couple of years ago. But again, it's inevitable. She was older. Um, uh, it, it was very sad. So it was the most significantly distressing grief experience I've ever had. You know, before that, I'd had predominantly only, you know, grandparents. And so I guess that's a bit different because they're, you kind of expect grandparents to, to die at some point. They're old and they get sick. And but my mother was, was the, the closest person. So, and it was, a, and I was very close to her. She was a very strong support and she lived nearby. So I saw her regularly. So uh, it was incredibly painful. And it was, and, and to be honest, I guess it was even complicated by it was in the midst of COVID. So they were all, lots of other complications going on, but but it did make me think a lot about it. And again, I think one of the things that helped me, um, and this is sort of kind of coming from a positive perspective, and and I, I admit it wasn't easy at all. I was very distressed for a long period. It's still, it's still upsetting, obviously. But one of the things that helped me was, again, to understand that grief is a normal human emotion. It's a healthy emotion. And what it, what it meant is that it showed me and others how much I loved it, you know, how much I loved my mom. And so that, that's a positive thing. And so I started, I, I tried as hard as I could and I thought as much as I could about that the grief was a sign of love. It's kind of like the, you know, the two sides of the coin in a sense. And that you know, the fact I was so upset showed how much I cared and how close we were. And then so and that enabled me then to sort of over time think more about all the good times we'd had and the positive aspects of our relationships and how lucky I was to have a supportive, loving, caring mummy. And not not everyone's that lucky. So, you know, it took a long time and there was a lot of pain along the way, but but I've got to the point now, you know, and it's still, you know, we've just had Mother's Day here. So that's obviously a bit of a trigger and a bit upsetting. And her birthday's coming up, so that's a bit upsetting. But more often than not now, it's been almost two years, I'm able to get to the stage of thinking. Again, of being grateful and and feeling lucky and grateful that I had that relationship in my life, which you know, I guess sadly not everyone has. Mm. Thank you for your perspective. It's really really helpful and it's an interesting. Like I said it was a sharp left turn. I really appreciate the answer and the insights you got from it. But Tim, thank you so much for all the insights that you've given us today. So if people want to follow more of your work, read some of your books, listen to some of the content that you're putting out, where is the best place to find you? Uh, well, firstly, uh, thanks for having me, Elliot, and, and thank you. Yeah, thanks for great conversations and great questions. Uh, probably the simplest answer is to go to, I guess, my website, which is uh, drhappy.com.au, D-R-H-A-P-P-Y.com.au. You can find me on social media at the Happiness Institute, so Facebook and Instagram, the Happiness Institute. Uh, from there or from my website, you can get to, to the social platforms and also to probably the best place to to read or hear my books these days is on Audible. Uh, if for any Audible members, they're, they're free. And uh, if you just search for Dr. Tim Sharp, or again, there's links from my website. There's a whole series of, of books on happiness and mental health. So uh, I hope people might find them useful. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll make sure that all of those links are in the show notes today. But thank you once again. It's been an amazing conversation. I really appreciate your time and your insights as well. Thanks for having me. Cheers, Tim. And that was the Simply Fit Podcast. I hope you gained a huge amount of value from today's episode. I feel inspired to improve your health and well-being. Be sure to search for Simply Fit in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. And go ahead and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Also, if you like the episode, please don't forget to give it a five-star rating. I'd love to hear your feedback or any questions you have. So reach out to me on social media. You'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Elliot Hassoun. Thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to talking with you all on the next one.